What's up, good people, and welcome to Good Things with Matt Wells. It's good to have you here, and I hope that everything is beautiful and real good with you. This is our final episode of season two, and I just wanted to take a moment to thank you all uh, from my heart for listening and for your comments and emails and messages and support. It means a lot to me. I'm just winding it down here for the year, but I promise we will be back again with more episodes in 2023. Our journey here together on this podcast is just beginning. I got more people to talk to, more interviews to do, uh, and I'm looking forward to that. So why don't we have our last little sip of green tea for the year? Yeah, I like it. Uh, tastes good wherever I am. Last week I was in St. John's. Uh, right now I'm in Toronto. My green tea follows me. Um, you know, this podcast, uh, I've come to realize, is very much an extension of how I've built most things in my life, creatively speaking anyway. Just like the band, one show at a time, slogging it out on the road for 10 years. Uh, certainly my most recent chapter as an actor and an independent filmmaker for me, I identify with hard work and paying your dues. That feels right to me. Um, I guess it's how I was raised, you know. Uh, my mom was a very hard hard worker. My dad as well. He's a hard working fella. Um, and I believe you, you need to put your 10,000 hours in if you really want to do something right. And it's on that journey that I find myself most at peace. My identity, I think, um, in my life as a father... As a creative person, what I try to teach my kids and the example I set for them, and I hope for others around me who I work with, is that hard work is the success. Feeling like you gave it everything is the win. Anything else is gravy, as they say. So, uh, with that in mind, let's jump back to the year 2008 when I interviewed... Ice tea. So I interviewed Ice a couple of times, but the most impactful moments with him came when I spent a few days with him in New York City and New Jersey back in 2008. Now, first of all, um, I was with Ice when he voted in the U.S. presidential election for the first time, like his first time ever voting. I stood just outside like the curtain while he voted for Barack Obama. And, you know, he and I got to chat a lot about that on and off camera but it is a really long story, a very cool one, but I thought worth mentioning since I'm on the topic and uh, I'll have to save that part of it for another time. So this was for my show, Where You At Baby, this docu-series where I did a deep dive into the life of influential musicians of the 80s and 90s. And Ice-T is one of the most influential figures in the history of hip-hop, period. I mean, that goes without saying. But he's also become equally as well-known as an actor. For over 20 years, he's played a cop on Law & Order SVU, which actually currently makes him the longest-running black actor on one running show in TV history, which is crazy to think about. Um, his first major acting role was as a cop, again, in 1991, uh, the movie New Jack City, which was a huge movie for me, still is. So, Ice-T... The man who helped pioneer gangster rap, the man who was literally investigated by the FBI for his song, Cop Killer, the man who, if you know anything about his history, grew up on the streets of South Central LA, 
and without music could easily have landed in jail like most of his peers. He was a career criminal, but he got out of that life and now has portrayed a cop in film and television for almost half of his life. And there's a few things there I want to unwrap. First, um, you know, he said to me during these couple of days I spent with him that there's not a huge difference between cops and gangsters. Let's think about that for a second. And he wasn't joking. And this is, this is no insult to anybody. He said, look, they both want something. They both use guns. And they're both going to get the answers they need or they want. Right? Different but the same. He also told me that iconic TV creator Dick Wolf said to him upon you know taking the job, when Ice was taking this job in the beginning, he said, Ice, do you think we need cops? You know, he knew... Uh, Ice-T's history with, you know, the song Cop Killer and all his lyrics. And, uh, and I said, yeah, we need cops. We need good cops that we can trust. And Dick Wolf said to him, then be that cop on this show. Portray the cop that we need. So that's what Ice has portrayed all these years. He was able to keep his own identity and still represent his community and the streets and the life that he came from, even though he plays a cop. And he did it on New Jack City back in 1991. And he's still doing it today on Law and & Order. And you know, the other thing, if you read his books or follow Ice on social media or listen to his music, he's never changed. He's never strayed from his identity. And the other thing he told me about his life as an actor, you know, because he came into it later and he was coming at it, you know, as a rapper getting into the acting game. And, and this, what he told me was also the same for his music and how hard he had to work at it. He said, Matt, every day I live by this rule. And he said, we should all live by it. If you want something in this life, you need to be the hardest working motherfucker in the room. Because if you didn't earn it, you don't deserve it. And my guest knows something about that. My guest is writer, director, Musician, playwright, showrunner, producer, Romeo Candido. His resume is stacked. Working Moms, Son of a Critch, The Next Step, Circuit Breakers for Apple TV, Another Life for Netflix, and the award-winning digital series for CBC called Top Line, in which he basically did everything. Produced, wrote, wrote the music, directed, showrunner, and, and... He ensured that it was a vehicle for Filipino Canadians to showcase their talent, something he has worked and worked and worked hard at doing over his entire career. Something that was recently recognized at the Real Asian Film Festival in Toronto, in which Romeo was the subject of the Canadian Spotlight, a retrospective of his prolific career. His story is really inspiring. It began at 19 years old in the massive Toronto production of Miss Saigon, which has taken him on a journey as one of the hardest working people I've ever met. Uh, and after over 25 years in the business, he's now just hitting this winning streak that is long overdue. And look, on a personal note, I've got history with Romeo. He was there for me when I wanted to switch from hosting to writing and acting. He helped guide me through writing my first script. He walked me through prep for my very first audition. And uh, he was on that trip with me to New York City with Ice-T. 
Romeo is the hardest working person in every room because he's had to be. And he deserves this winning streak and everything that's to come because like Ice-T said, he's earned it. And uh, I'm so happy to have him here on the pod. So, thanks for listening this year. Thanks for being here. And this is Romeo Candido on Good Things with Matt Wells. Romeo Candido. Matt Wells. Are you ready to tell me something good? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Um, so let's get let's get the first part out of the way. No, let's we get the first talking. part out of the way. Did you have your green tea? Yeah, I got my green tea right here, buddy. Um, second question. Um, in all of your other interviews, it's like, oh, it's Tom Morello, it's Finding Purpose, and Amanda Paris. What's your purpose? Mm-hmm. So which celebrity interview are you going to pair me up with? Is it going to be Debbie Gibson? It's Debbie Gibson. <laughs> well, I'm not going to tell you because I think okay. it's better as a surprise. Yeah. But I do know. I already know because I think I know your story. Well, I don't think. I know I know your story better than all the other people I've interviewed. Maybe okay. with the exception of like Sean McCann or, or Michael Rowe. Okay. I know I know your story very well. Okay. And and I already do know who the uh the artist I'll pair you up with is. Yeah, D. Snyder. Uh well your <laughs> your Filipino your Filipino listeners is gonna jump up by hundred percent after. So yeah, l- let's get this first part out of the way now that you've okay. asked all your questions. Okay, I'm um, done. We have a lot of history in that you had you've been around me doing this work for not for a while, but for a very long time. So mm-hmm. is it is it weird that I'm interviewing you now? It's super weird. Um, for those who don't know, I was uh, I was the man behind the man for with Matt Wells at Much More Music for a long time. So I saw you prepping your interview questions. I helped you prep interview questions myself. Um, so for you to be asking me questions, it's like who's going to out, out Nardwar who? It's like, I'm, like, I'm just ready for you to, to try and find that thing. I'm like, oh, Matt, that's a good question. Anyway, so yes, it's, um, you know, I've, I've watched you. I've watched you interview a lot of people and I know how in-depth your uh, research is. So I'm a, a, I'm a little bit nervous for sure. Oh, that's good. That's yeah. not an easy thing to do with you. No. Um, okay, so let's get into it. Okay. Um, if I were to ask you, what does the word identity mean to you at this mm-hmm. moment in your life? Mm-hmm. What would you say? I think identity would uh, be the the different um, ways that a person sees themselves in the world. Um you know, whether it's gender, whether it's sexuality, whether it's race, whether it's religion, it's the way that they, um, it's the lens in which they see themselves um, in the world. Okay. I like that. Yeah. Well, I think I'd like to use that idea. Okay. um, As a, almost like an anchor for some of these moments in your life. Sure. Let's see how that goes. I'd like to start here, though. I'd like to start with, you know, the first time we met um, at, you know, at 299 Queen Street, this iconic 
building uh, in downtown Toronto and I was working at much music and much more music. And you came in as a new producer mm -hmm. and you know, you came up to me and you're like, Hey, I'm a Newfoundlander. And I thought you were like <laughs> taking the piss out of me. I was like, I see this, I see this Asian guy with his really big hair looking at me like, Hey, Newfoundlander, we're fellow Newfoundlanders. And then I come to realize that you were born in Newfoundland. And I think what I love about that, and I've been thinking a lot about that, you know, knowing that I was going to speak to you. And a conversation you and I have had through the years is certainly when you became a dad and I and I was a young dad, we and even some of the things that we'd work on together, we would always think about what what is it as parents or as dads that that we can relate with, you know, in with in with our own parents. Mm -hmm. How does that change our thinking in life? And you know, the story of how your parents and why your parents ended up in Newfoundland is fascinating. And I wonder if you could take us down that road a little bit, because it's not the type of thing that you or I could ever relate with. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, so all of our pissing and moaning about our problems, like for me, just looks so small compared to the generation of Filipinos who immigrated to Canada or North America in the 70s, even though I'm a I'm young, 27 year old. Um, so my parents left the Philippines while they saw the the Marcos dictatorship looming. And the first point of entry that they found was Newfoundland because Newfoundland was opening its doors um, for immigration. They needed to stimulate a little bit of population growth. And for some reason, my parents, my dad got a teaching um, offer to teach in Briggs Bay, Newfoundland, Briggs Bay in the northern, northern peninsula of the island. And um, and so it was my dad, then my mom, and then a year later, I was born um, in Flowers Cove, Newfoundland, um, which my mom, they were driving from Briggs Bay to go to St. Anthony's, where which was the closest hospital at the time. And my mom wasn't going to make it, the bumpy roads and the conditions, and she wasn't going to make it. So they, I don't even know how the hell they knew to stop in Flowers Cove, Newfoundland. But like, I guess on the way they saw um, uh, the hamlet of Flowers Cove, and they ended up at a midwife's house or station. And uh, I was born there and I was premature and I was put in a sock drawer filled with heated mason jars um, for my first day of life. And, you know, when I talk about painful birth stories, my mom stayed awake that whole first night for fear that they were going to shut this sock drawer on me. Um, and I was kind of like, you know what I mean? Like you, here you are a Filipino woman in a very young, like way younger than we are now, Matt, living in the most isolated region of Canada um, and having your first child. Like you had to come to my house to bring like nipple guards because I was under, <laughs> me and my wife were under such, such assault from a baby. Like, so I can't even imagine um, I, I can't even imagine having to start life with your baby in Newfoundland when you don't know anybody. So that's that's the origin story. But even before that, Romeo, the reason that your 
parents even had to leave the Philippines. Yeah. Like for the for the listeners who who wouldn't understand that, why did they have to leave? So uh, Ferdinand Marcos was the president in power of the Philippines, late sixties and into the seventies, and uh, he became you know a a dictator. He he ruled the country with an authoritarian um, kind of powers. And, um, you know, for those who don't know what martial law is, it's when the, when the president has all of the power of the country. And so with, um, with his power growing, my parents decided that it was time to um, leave the country to give their children a better future than they could ever have. Um, and so, which is interesting having worked on Son of a Critch, that Newfoundland comedy, I got to even write about this idea about the about Filipinos in Canada uh, watching the news from back home uh, while it was unfolding. So so yeah, they ultimately my parents left, like many of the Filipino diaspora, left the Philippines to give uh, better opportunities and a better future for their children. Romeo could you explain the concept or explain to me what a Balak Bayan is? <laughs> Balak Bayan. Uh, Balak Bayan is two Filipino words kind of smushed together. Balik means return and Bayan means people. So a Balak Bayan is someone from the diaspora, like a Filipino born in Canada or a Filipino who has left um, the Philippines. And uh, when they return to the Philippines, they are called the Balak Bayan. And so when I lived in the Philippines, 2004 to 2008, I, I lived there as a Balik Bayan, a returning okay. people. Yeah. And is that a, is that a, a big moment? Like when you, does it, is something like that going there and living there, having been born in Canada and being raised in Canada, does, is that something that's a, a monumental moment for you or for, or for Filipinos? For Filipinos. Yeah. So a lot of the Filipinos who left the Philippines, these are, you know, a lot of our parents are working class people. So even going back to the Philippines, that's a big, big, big expense. And that's an expense that not every Filipino has the privilege of being able to pay for. So for me, my big Balik Bayan experience was in 2000 when I went back to the Philippines with my mom. And going back, th there's something that happens. There's like, I feel... I feel like it's like a, a little bit of um, I doubled as a person because in Canada, I'm I always saw the world as a marginalized person, as a person of color, somebody on you know they called us marginalized people. That was the term. We were marginalized people. Um, we were ethnic minorities. So growing up with these kind of terms um, put on us we always felt outside of the center. We always felt not so Canadian. We always felt like immigrants. And so when I went to the Philippines for my first time with my mom as a person who could think like, uh, you know, I went when I was three or four, but those kind of don't count. Um, but when I went and as a grown up to the Philippines with my mom for the first time, I felt like I doubled as a human being. I felt like I expanded as a human being because then I saw my mom's origin story. Then I saw the school where she walked. Then I saw her friends and I saw 
a light in her that I didn't see in Canada because she was home. She was with her people. And the extension of that vibration is like, I am home. I am looking around and I am looking at people who look like me. I'm, I, there's nothing. It's weird because as a Balakbayan in the Philippines, I am still an outsider, but just the visuals of being in a place from where I came from, it's, it's a, it's, it's profound because it goes beyond an intellectual understanding of what's happening to you. And if we, if we are talking about identity, my identity expanded in that moment where I wasn't just Filipino Canadian, I was actually a Filipino um, and this is my homeland. And so um, I feel like I doubled as a person um, when I had that experience. And then of course, living there and working there, I'm, you know, working in Canada prior to working in the Philippines, I was hustling, I was writing government grants. My my story was, nobody's telling Filipino stories. Nobody, I don't see myself, give me money so I can do these things. But then working in the Philippines, I didn't have to have that narrative. I was working in commercials. I was working with the biggest rock stars in the world. I had all this access. All of a sudden, I felt like a privileged person. It was the first time I felt privileged. It was the first time that my my Filipino Canadianness wasn't me being a minority in Canada, but it was a bit of it was an asset as I was a foreign Filipino coming to the Philippines with my foreign point of view and my English tongue and all of mm. these advantages that it gave me. So um so both times going there for the first time was a very soul um enriching Balakbayan experience and then working there became I just felt um I was given power to to create and do what I was supposed to do I think that's so interesting and um you know identity is so important for everybody but certainly one of the things that I learned from you and working with you was how important it was for you to make sure that you were trying to find representation for people who looked like you. Even when we were in a place at, you know, much music and much more music, when that wasn't really happening. I mean, we were interviewing a lot of white musicians. Yeah. And I was the white, I was the white host. And and every time you and I would work on something, you would always fight or try to find a way to 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 get that representation in there, which I which was which had an impact on me. And I, I think I realize it now more in this stage of my life, um, knowing you like I do and having become friends with someone like Sharon Lewis, who's taught me similar things. Um, so I wanted, with that in mind, I want to sort of jump back a little bit and talk a, a, about Miss Saigon, because, you know, I remember you telling me about this, this part of your life. You were, you're 19 years old. You, you, you get a part in this massive, uh, musical, which was kind of life-changing for you. So tell first, before I ask my question, tell us a little bit about how Miss Saigon came into your world and, and, and what role you played and, and how, what a role it played in your life. <clears throat> yeah. So Miss Saigon, before YouTube, before anything, the only, the, the first time that Filipinos, um, were able to take center stage, so to speak, in something that had a mainstream cultural impact was Miss Saigon. Uh, Miss Saigon is a musical 
written by Alain Boublil and Claude Michel Schomburg, famous for writing the musical Les Mis. And it was their take of the Madame Butterfly story set in um, the Vietnam War with American GIs and Vietnamese prostitutes. And it was a tragic love story. And so for me, you know, later on, I have a whole bunch of things I, I could say about that show, but at the time, that was the only place that I had seen Filipinos represented in anything um, mainstream. Leia Salonga was, uh, I think she won a Tony or she was nominated for a Tony. It was on Broadway. It was on London's West End. In my last year of high school, I went with the drama class to go watch it. And there they were, um, people who looked like me on stage with an audience filled with white people. So, um, so even two years before uh, the show uh, was announced to be coming to Toronto, I said, I need to be in that show. That was the show for me. I was a big musical theater nerd in high school. I was doing West Side Story. So I'm like, one day I'll be in that show. So fast forward to two years later, um, after a successful um, production in London, on the West End, a successful production in, um, on Broadway, the Mervishes announced that Miss Saigon was coming to Toronto, landing in Toronto, 1993, Miss Saigon. And so the hype was real. They built a theater. I auditioned for eight months. Um, I was cut. I was brought back in. And then the day after my last callback, which was callback number nine, FYI, after a year of callbacks and disappointment, I was asked to join the company. At the time, it was the biggest musical in North America because they built a theater, the Princess of Wales Theater in Toronto. Um, they, it was the largest, you know, seated, <clears throat> like biggest audience, biggest pre-sales. There was, you know, so at 19, I was part of this show, this Broadway behemoth at the height of the mega musical. And I was in the center. And for the first time, all of these feelings of being outside or disadvantaged for being Filipino or any of those kind of outsider feelings, I, I started feeling, um, those started going away. Uh, you know, having grown up in Kingston, Ontario in a very hockey, a white hockey town. Um, and then all of a sudden I'm doing like my dream job at 19, those kind of feelings went away. And then I was proud to be, um, I was proud to be like this, you know, part of this show that ran for two years and I got paid and I was the first professional artist that I knew from my community. And, um, yeah. And so that was that. So I have two questions. Um, yes. one, uh, I guess you, you probably felt like, well, this is it my my path is ready to go and everything is going to be easy after this yes 100 percent. and it, and and how quickly did you find out that that was not the case the problem with having an early win is you think that they're always going to be easy or not easy but you 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 have the entitlement that you belong there and so it it's, it worked for me in two ways. A, it's like, oh my God, I'm in a big musical show. Now I'm going to get a record deal. Then I'm going to be a filmmaker. Then I'm going to be fucking rich. Um, are we allowed to swear on this podcast? You can swear, buddy. Okay. Um, and so it gave me that. 
But then after Miss Saigon, I I had an agent. I didn't get an audition for a year. I was dropped by my agent. I wanted to, I formed a R&B group with people in the the thing. And every time we would perform in places, it would, we, you know, we were a bunch of Filipinos singing R&B music um, in like two decades before Bruno Mars, two decades before people like her or um, just like, you know, people who've had mainstream success that were not black. And so we, we would, we would kill, like we would go into these open mics and we would go into these uh, black music spaces and everyone would know who we were, you know? So we had a degree of polish. Um, our, our, our front man was just such a soulful singer. Um, his name is Yohan Kamat. Um, and so I just thought big Broadway show record deal. Let's go. And, um, and it wasn't like that. We were record labels who didn't know what to do with an all Asian band singing black music. Um, we, we all had to get jobs, you know, like I went from doing Miss Saigon to being an usher at a theater that was playing forever plaid. Like I went, like, it was fast. Like, you know, it was, it was, it was so fast. The, the reality check, I think once the kind of the savings started disappearing, I mm. realized it was, it was, it was going to get tough. And then after that year of not getting one audition, not even one fucking audition, then I started thinking maybe I need to start writing because no one's going to write the stories for me. So my second part uh, of the question around this time of your life is going back to identity. Yeah. So you're in Miss Saigon. You're talking about how great it is that Filipino people can, you know, be in this large, large um, production. But you, one you second, play... that Filipino people could play Vietnamese <laughs> in this large production. Okay, well, that on. well, that is exactly what I was about to say. Yeah, you played Vietnamese, so mm -hmm. I guess at 19 years old, I, I guess what I want to do is try to get you to reflect a little bit about at the time. What mm -hmm. was your identity? Mm -hmm. You know, how did that form your identity of who you were and now what you're doing? And how has that changed? Well, at the time, I remember the show was being picketed by uh, Filipino activist groups, Asian activist groups, um, groups that didn't want the depiction of Asian characters to be just of pimps and prostitutes. And, um, and many of them were Filipino activists that, and, you know, rightfully so. And so I remember I would cross those picket lines and I'm like, why would you attack the only show that ha that could, that has ever employed Filipino performers? And then the show came up, the show went down. And then I, those same activists, I ended up befriending because, um, because then I would, I would like, you know, I think the show should die. This show is written by two white men about the Asian experience. Um, and it's a retelling of a thing. So like me now, my version now, I, I would be picketing that thing. I would be on Q radio. I would be on good things with Matt Wells saying a show like Miss Saigon should not fucking exist now. But at the time, it gave me a glimpse of what could be as a career. So 
after Miss Saigon, then I started writing things and then I started writing grants. And then um, the same people who picketed me commissioned me to write um, uh, a one-man show dealing with domestic violence in the Filipino household. And so after writing the coattails of this Vietnamese story, then because I had nothing past that, some of my castmates, they went off to do Miss Saigon again uh, in Broadway and Germany and, and whatever, but I did not. And then I started writing stories from my community um, produced by those same activists um, and then I just kind of haven't looked back since then. And I, I, I guess I sort of went a little bit out of order, but it really makes sense because you do Miss Saigon, you have the sort of, you know, cultural, I guess, awakening. And then you, that's when you go to the Philippines, right? You have, that's your Bellic Bayan. And that's probably has had a big, a lot to do with why it was so impactful for you having come out of Miss Saigon and now working in the Philippines and seeing this is how it actually can be. Well, before that step, I wrote, I did a one-man show. I toured right. a one-man show. The one-man show turned into my first feature film called Lolo's Child, which is the first Filipino-Canadian uh, feature film and I want like and I'm gonna keep saying it it was the first feature fucking film edited on Final Cut Pro in Canada um, <laughs> and uh, so I did that film I toured film festivals it was still a little bit ahead of its time like people had never seen a actor writer director composer auteur type so it it didn't get the love from the mainstream festivals but it it got the love from the Asian film festivals. And from there, I thought you make a feature film, then you get work, but that did not happen. Um, so then from there, I did short films, I did wedding videos, I did whatever I could to pay the bills. And then one of those short films, a film about a Filipino sausage ma maker starring Ron Jossel was seen by an advertising agent uh, agency in the Philippines. And so this short film, that was shot in my base shot in my apartment was seen by an advertising person in the Philippines. And then I was brought up and then I directed all these big commercials. And then I directed my second feature film, which was a horror movie. Um, so, so Romeo, during, so during that time, yes. Um, post Miss Saigon. Yeah making these films, working with the, with the activists who had been picketing yeah. this show you're on. How was your identity changing now? What, like, how did you identify yourself then? Well, I was always a proud Filipino, even in Miss Saigon. But then in the time after I became a proud Filipino Canadian, my identity was I'm no longer a Filipino in a big show, but I am a Filipino with the need to sing my own songs, with the need to tell stories of my community because uh, we are not reflected. We are, we are, we have been invisibilized. We are invisible in this culture. So because I had the Miss Saigon experience and it gave me a little bit of cachet at the time, I became like the foremost kind of outspoken Filipino artist who was trying to bridge an activism thing with a more entertainment thing. Like activism art, it, 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 it's very it's always intense it's always kind of um it's always it you know it's coming from a place of pain it's coming from a place of oppression um so a lot of times it's very harsh and and it's they're very painful truths but i was coming from 
I want to couch all of these truths within our community, whether it be domestic violence, whether it be colonialism, whether it be whatever, crab mentality, and I want to couch it into something more funny and something accessible and feed people the medicine with a spoonful of sugar. And so that period, I was really on a soapbox by myself, linking up with Filipino student associations, linking up with Filipino religious groups, linking up with Filipino kind of community orgs, using a film, my first film to be a rallying point. And then after when the film was released, then kind of discussing the, the kind of ails of our community. So I was the Filipino Canadian with the cachet of a big show, but now like really telling stories of our experience. So when I meet you in 2008-ish, yes. um, you get this job at Much Music. Yes. Um, and this is a full-time job, which, mm -hmm. you know, as, as we both know in, in the entertainment business or the arts in Canada, I mean, that's almost like winning the lottery. For sure. Um, so you come to this much music world uh, with, a, with a whole wealth uh, of experience and life yep. that you, you've lived. So, so where are you at this point in your life? Like now you're working at much music, much more music. As I sort of mentioned a little while ago, you're working with a lot of white hosts. You, it's a lot of like, it's very, you know, it just was, it's just the reality of it. a lot of these, you know, the top yeah. videos or artists, yeah. artists were, were white. So, how, so tell me about where you are in, in your life now and how much music sort yeah. of where, where it becomes fits. part of your story. Yeah. Where it fits in your story. Well, I was the hot boy as a commercial director. I was making all this money for a while. Then I did a feature film, took me out of the commercial world in the Philippines. This is the Philippines I'm talking about. And then when I came back to the commercial industry, which is actually where you could, where's the, the only place you could really get paid as a director, I wasn't the hot boy anymore. And so I had a sliding door one day where I was directing a commercial at a pig farm for vitamin that accelerates the speed of a pig growing from three to six weeks. Anyways, I'm on a pig farm directing a pig commercial with a bunch of pigs. And I'm like, I don't <laughs> want to do this anymore. Um, and then, I, and then I want to come, I just want to come home. I had, my mom had been sick for a while. Um, I was offered a Gatorade commercial in Vietnam. And then I somehow um, was given an opportunity to work for much music. And I took much music just because I needed to get back home. I needed to be home. And I, I was tired of the commercial grind in the Philippines and I was feeling a little bit homesick. And so what I came back to, you know, just work on a theater show and then I applied for much music and then I decided to stay. So when you met me in my head, I was the most fucking talented person in that building. I had done two feature films. I re had recorded an album, had all of this experience in the Philippines. And so then I came, I came, too much music and i had more experience than anyone that building like as an artist as a creator as a whatever it just didn't it just wasn't like white people music stories and so but you know, um i think i was utilized well i, I got there I, I i was getting paid in canada before the philippines i never got paid to to do videography or to edit and to do all these things like i was I was a I was a struggling artist in Canada before the before the Philippines. So I came here. Oh, here's a job. Oh, you can actually 
rent a cottage in the summer. Oh, I could buy a dog. I can, you know, all the things that people do. I could buy a Canada goose, like all of that shit that like that much music, that building, like, oh, I can afford things. And so when I was in the Philippines, I was as a director, every time I got a job, 50 families would eat. You know, I would be able to, or not, yeah, 50 families, not 50 people, but every time I work, 50 people would be employed under me and then they would eat. And so for like the two years, I felt like I carried this burden of if I don't work, other people don't eat. But then I get to much music and I just get paid and I could just get paid for us and I don't have to worry about anything and I could just show up. And then at night, you know, all of my day jobs have been kind of like my waitering jobs while I'm writing my next project and while I'm writing my next thing. So when y'all met me, um, I was too good for that building. Fuck, let's just fucking be real. You know what I mean? Like I was using 30% of my capacity as an artist and being paid the most I've ever been paid in Canada. So y'all got the 30%. And then at night I would be working on my own shit. Um, You and me, we were the like, you know, we rebranded much more music. We worked on a Gemini award-winning show. Like, and like you were also an outsider. We both were a little bit of outsiders in that. And I think that's why we got along um, so well, because we kind of had our own shit going. Like you mm-hmm. always had your own shit going. I always had my own hustle going. And um, so when everyone met me at Much Music, it was an opportunity for me to get paid work on my own projects at night. Um, and then I got sucked into the culture. Then I got sucked into the paycheck and, I, and then I got yeah. sucked into the, please don't fire me. And then by the end of my time at Much Music at 299, when I was let go, I felt that I was old, irrelevant, and that I wasn't going to find another job in the Canadian media and industry. Like I really, really felt that. Like I went from, like over the course of the eight years of working at Much Music, I felt like the most talented fucking person in the building to someone who was irrelevant because I didn't know how to use Premiere Pro and After Effects and do what these young kids were doing. Um, so, you know, while it got me a house or got me a mortgage, it really spit me out in a in a in a place where I had to rebuild myself. Yeah, I want to get to that but before we get off the Much Music. Um part of your life one one and we don't need to to go into it but i think this is the only time i'll ever get to mention it so it's worth noting that i was in nashville um listener with this guy romeo and we're sitting around a campfire with tiffany 80s pop star tiffany like i think we're alone now tiffany and we're doing this documentary show with her and and everyone's passing a guitar around and playing their little sort of country songs. And I play them my little country song. And then Romeo, who I still don't really know that well, sitting there goes, hey, could I could I share something? And I just love how you said, could I share something? And then you, I think maybe it was my guitar or whoever, someone's, and we pass you a guitar and, and, I, and I shit you not, Romeo opens his mouth and everybody's jaw drops. He just starts singing this beautiful song, this beautiful voice. And it wasn't until that moment I even realized what you are capable of musically. So I just wanted to give you your your props for that because I still talk about that story and I don't know when I'd get to talk about it on the <laughs> podcast. Well, music is my first language, you know? Music got me into Miss Saigon. Music got me, uh, you know, record development deals. But my brown skin and 
the time that we were living in, music was not going to be a viable thing. Mm -hmm. Like, it's only now that people are discovering that I'm actually a musician because mm -hmm. I've had to kind of couch that dream for the last, let's say, 20, 30 years because there's no place for a Filipino with my kind of vibe in the music industry and this music industry that validates who's allowed to be a musician or not. So for me, if people ever listen to my music, that's my truest expression. That's, mm -hmm. that's my, like, that's the closest. So I remember the song, it's a song called Eagle. It's a song about dreaming that I was an Eagle dreaming that I was a man. Like it's this, it goes back to this Buddhist Cohen of what's our dream world. Like it's about, you know, like I dreamt I was a butterfly dreaming I was a man or something is the Buddhist mm -hmm. thing. And so, you know, I feel like I'm always kind of coming in and out of these states of identity. If you, yeah. if, if we want to yeah. go back to that, one of my identities is I'm a musician. That's my primary art form. That's my primary communication form. That is my, my soul being articulated in a real way, music that. And so, you know, I just felt inspired to like, you know, mm -hmm. because Tiffany and you and like you guys do music <laughs> and I don't <clears throat> do music to perform. I do music to share always. It's it's always an expression of like, I'm not one of these fil karaoke Filipinos. I am not a performative karaoke. Like, yeah, like I, I'm, I don't do karaoke because that's performing when I sing. It's It's exposing and it's being vulnerable. And so that moment in Nashville, the sun is going down. We just finished an amazing shoot. I was inspired by Tiffany's story. Everybody was singing and I just felt moved to do mm -hmm. it. And I felt moved to let you in on who I was. Yeah, it was beautiful, man. It, it had a big impact on me. I still talk about it. And I still think about it a lot. Uh, no, before we leave the much music thing, though, on, on a serious note, you know, you you're you're having this career as a as a producer. You're you're hustling, you're grinding, things are going, but you know, you, you suffered a real tragedy working on much music, your house burned down. Oh yeah. That, that, that little thing. Yeah. You know, and in the spirit of this podcast, you know, of, of us trying to find the light through the darkness, I wonder if you could share a little bit of uh, that experience with us. Um, I was coming home from much music. I went to, you know, I got out the subway station, looked at the sky, the sky was black. I'm like, that looks fucking bad. Went to the grocery store, bought some shit was walking up the street toward the house, the big crowd, a lot of fire trucks. I'm like, God damn, that looks close to my house. The more I was walking towards my house, the more I'm like, oh man, that's really close to my house. I tried to call Caroline, my wife. Um, and, you know, the closer and closer I got, I'm like, holy shit, is that my house? I couldn't get a hold of Caroline. And then I broke through the crowd. I saw my house was on fire. I run towards the house of like seven firemen, walk in front of me i'm like that's my goddamn house and so i watch my house and my neighbor's house where i'm in a semi-detached um up in flames and uh it was one of those moments where i felt you know that experience is so disorienting um but then i we felt lifted you know i the next day i went to much music and as much as i can complain about the environment somebody there was a you know people put money in an envelope and gave it to me and then you know the filipino community they gave us money and then the insurance people gave us money so we got to rebuild the house but for for a while we were like we were lost and we were a bit disoriented 
and uh, we need, you know, we relied on the kindness of strangers and non-strangers. And then I just realized that, like, sh that shit's not important. Like, you know, it could have been a bad story if somebody was hurt and if we lost somebody, but stuff is just stuff. And so that became a that became a time where I just realized stuff is just stuff. So, Romeo, when you get laid off from Bell Media, which hundreds and hundreds of producers and and yeah. um, employees did through from the time yeah. that I left to now, and it's still happening. Yeah. Um, hashtag Bell Let's Talk. Hashtag yeah. Bell Let's Talk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> then there's this, you know, you're you don't have a regular paycheck anymore, and then no. CBC Arts comes into your into your world. So, yeah. tell just briefly tell us about the 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 hustle and the struggle now going from a regular paycheck to not back to the grind and then yep. and then into cbc arts which i feel like was a a very thank god was a very not uh, yeah go ahead go ahead well i just have to say thank god for cbc arts because after bell after the layoffs at bell then i had to ask myself what do i really want to fucking do with my life what do i really want to do and it's like, I want to break. And then I decided then I was part of a, I got into a program, the ironically, the Bell Diverse Screenwriting, WGC Bell Diverse Screenwriting Program, where I'm like, I want to write for television. Like, you know, like you and me, we we're always grinding scripts and pitching in-house. In but like, then I'm like, okay, I really want to write television. And so that dream took five years to materialize. But in the meantime, I was offered a job to go to the CBC, which I'd never worked at before, um, to kind of remount CBC Arts and put, uh, you know, to to make CBC Arts a thing as a senior producer under Carolyn Hugh. Then I did a show called Exhibitionist with Amanda Paris and an amazing team of people who became my family. And for five years, we shined a light on, shone a light um, on artists from all across Canada and our agenda was to make sure that the light was on artists who come from diverse communities, BIPOC, Indigenous, Black, um, queer, uh, differently able, disabled. So while I was there, we did a hundred, I did a hundred plus shows of exhibitionists, which is uh, like, um, you know, a show that puts together do short documentaries of artists. And I produced probably 400 documentaries always shining a light on artists across from Canada. And there's something that was happening that happened when I was working at Bell where I was producing pieces for all the other artists. During my Bell time, all, all the white people, <laughs> sometimes black, <laughs> black people. And then, and then in CBC, fuck, I couldn't have put more Filipinos on CBC. It, like if somebody comes and beats me, hats off to you but like i put more filipinos on the cbc uh airwaves than anyone ever did and in some and, and in some way it's like you were it's like you were working towards that opportunity for your whole life like you were always in and out of like okay i've got miss saigon but i'm not really representing uh, i had to go to the philippines to be able to make these things but when i come back to canada it's harder for me to to have that representation but you were always grinding with it at night and doing your your community outreach work and all those things you did but it felt like this opportunity you had to work 20 years or more to be ready for or to to have like you were ready when the opportunity came for cbc arts yeah 
Yeah, I would like to say so because I I have been a musician. I have been a theater artist. I have worked in the dance community. I have worked in film. I have worked in TV. So who better than a multidisciplinary artist to be a senior producer for CBC Arts who's been in the communities to 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 you know showcase the different artists across Canada. Yeah. Who is a Newfoundlander? That's right. Anyways, and then and then at the same time, at night, I'm working on my band. I'm working, writing scripts, and mm. then, um, and then during my time at CBC Arts, then I land, um, I land a coordinating position uh, as a story coordinator for Kim's Convenience, and so that was my first kind of experience in a writer's room. So Romeo, through all these other you know milestones, and we talk about these other things you're working on, you know, there's there's been very monumental things for you, and you know, we just I would need to have you on for three hours to 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 really go in depth about them, but you know, because of all of your work, not the least of which is Prison Dancer, Top Line, um, you know, did you watch Top Line yet? Listener, listen to this. I listen, let's see, have let's... told you, no, I haven't. And I'm embarrassed to say I haven't, but I want to watch it with Sophia. And you will, you're going to learn this soon. Got it. Sophia's 16 and trying to find time with a teenage teenager uh, is not easy. <laughs> but I, 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 I want to watch it. it with her because of, I think she'll connect with it. And because of our, my and Sophia's history with you. Um, so that's, that's I why. So I, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't. But I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to watch it without her. But because of Top Line, because of Prison Dancer, because of yes, Datu, the, this yes, the, this beautiful music that you've been making, which is all and all these these projects are so focused on your culture. You get this wonderful um, spotlight this year with the Real Asian Film Festival, and I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that and what that has meant to you. So. As a marginalized filmmaker who couldn't get any headway in like the mainstream film festivals because I was always kind of untrained and kind of like fumbling my way through learning how to make film, the Real Asian Film Festival has always been the my artistic home. Like they premiered my first movie 20 years ago. Um, my horror movie that I directed in the Philippines, they they were the Canadian premiere. They played all of my docs. And so Believe it or not, they put me in the Canadian spotlight. So I've had a 20-year retrospective of the work that I've shown in, in, um, at the festival. And so the festival just ended. We just ended with doing this top-line screening where I got all the singers and I stripped out the vocals and they sang live in this kind of cinematic karaoke experience. And so... It's been, you know, even even talking to you, it's been 20 years since um, when I started and to be honored in this way has been humbling because I feel like I'm at a different, if we want to get back to the theme of identity, I feel like I'm at a different space because for 20 years I have been doing Filipino work for Filipinos so Filipinos could see themselves and their experience reflected. But with this 20th year, I feel like I'm graduating. I feel like my job, trying to make Filipino shit for Filipinos, I feel like I'm graduating. Now I want to make world shit as a Filipino. Now I want to tell universal stories through my Filipino lens for the world. So I, there is a line that I am crossing as of this last week where it's like, 
I'm not doing it for Filipinos anymore. I've done it for Filipinos. I am now doing it for humanity. And then whatever I can do to bring different types of people together through my experience and through my stories, that is now the mission. But I'll always be probably Filipino. I'll always bring my sense of otherness, my sense of diaspora, my sense of Balik Bayan, my sense of being invisible. I'll bring all of these things now into my storytelling. Uh, it just doesn't necessarily have to be just Filipino anymore. I love what a producer you are because I don't even have to remind you of the theme of identity. You're just like, yeah, I get you, Matt. I've listened to all your <laughs> interviews. I know where you're going. Here's your answer. <laughs> well, it's just like we have to be succinct. Um, but, you know, like uh, right after Top Line, then I went to direct this hour's 22 minutes, white people. Then I got to direct an Apple show called Circuit Breakers, white people. Then I got to show run a show called The Next Step, which has traditionally been white people, but now has a bunch of fucking Filipinos in it. Then I got to, you know, then uh, what was after that? Then I directed Working Moms. Mm -hmm. um, and then I just finished a show called Popularity Papers. Like, so I've been working for 20 years for free. I, I only joined the DGC last year this time. I've only been a paid director for the last year. Like I've been up, I broke as a writer through the grace of God first, but I was, I only wrote so I can direct, but I've only been a working director for mm -hmm. the last year. And so in this 20th year of retrospective, it's like, here's 20 years of me doing the free shit for the people. Now I want to do like the paying right. shit. And, um, and while, you know, while I'm getting that white people money, um, I started a bursary called the Kalabao bursary, the Kalabao meaning water buffalo bursary being money. And I've started a bursary that goes specifically to young emerging Filipino, uh, Filipinx, Filipina filmmakers who remind me of me 20 years ago when like, imagine if somebody, like I can't imagine 20 years ago, if a Filipino successful working Filipino person gave me $5,000 to finish my film, that would have been all the mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like that would have been all the confidence. So I'm just hoping now that I'm in this position where I'm getting paid, where I can just give, you know, a, a, a little bit of money to somebody who's almost there and almost ready to cross the finish line to realize their story and their dreams. That's beautiful, man. That's amazing. Um, Romeo, before we, we sign off here, do you remember the um, the pilot episode of Dinner with Matt, the show I we do. wanted to make together? Yep. I talked about I talked about it this season um, in one of my sort of introductions. In my introduction, who's the guy again? Who is the Eric, 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 Eric McCormick. McCormick? Yes. So I talked about that in my opening uh, to my Jan Arden episode on this season, mm -hmm. and and I and I was thinking a lot about you in that moment. Do you remember the moment he was talking about his mom? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And he got re and he and he talked about the regret he had from going from Will and Grace yep. to Broadway, and then she was sick, and he didn't get to spend enough time yep, with her. Yeah, I do remember that. And I was, and I was thinking about that. That moment had a profound effect on mm -hmm. me, and um, and I started thinking about you, and I'm thinking about going back to the top of this interview about how your parents coming over from the Philippines to Newfoundland and the strength that you found from your mother, and I remember feeling um a real shift in you and the way you, you spoke and the way you carried yourself when your mom passed. Mm -hmm. 
and I and I and I and I hope you don't mind me asking about mm-hmm. that. How did that how did that change you as a person? How did that change your identity? Well, when a person's you know, if you're close to your mother like I was, the the tectonic plates, the foundation of who I was radically shifted. It radically pulled apart. And so this idea of having a source of unconditional love all of a sudden disappeared. And so, you know, I, it took me so long to articulate those feelings. And, and eventually when you watch top line, it was the only place I could put it artistically. It was the only place I had where I can put it. And it took me a long time to get to that place. And so I think the biggest thing is it, after losing my mom, it set me on a course of understanding what self-love was, you know, like there's, there's a, we have a cheat code or we have a shortcut to feeling loved when we have a parent who loves us like that. But then when we lose that parent, then we realize that a lot of that confidence or that feeling of safety or feeling of security that disappears. And so over the course of, you know, and I I remember talking to like a, a a Filipino martial art grandmaster, his name is Rodel. Um, He, I, we were talking about losing our mothers and I had said to him, you know, I just feel like I lost that cord to unconditional love that like, I feel like I've been cut off from it because I did for a long time. I felt like I was a little bit like a boat without an anchor. And so I go, how, you know, I lost that source of, you know, unconditional love. And he told me very profoundly, he goes, well, you need to learn to love yourself the way that she did. And so Mm. after losing my mom, then it became a wild and painful and arduous and grueling process of reconditioning myself, kind of like breaking a whole bunch of the intergenerational um, kind of habits. Because, you know, when your parents come from a different country and come to Canada and they're always in scarcity mindset or there's always imposter syndrome or there's always this sense of otherness, then that stuff makes its way in you. And so all of my artistic kind of explorations, my sassy, trolly sense of humor, my kind of my like those are all defense mechanisms. And so the last six or since my mom passed, it's been an exploration of vulnerability and vulnerability not being vulnerability as I'm weak, but vulnerability in that there is still, I'm assured of myself. So I'm open to express grief. I'm open to express fear. I'm open to express these things that as men, we tend to not express. And I feel how it's articulated itself as an artist is as an artist, it's our job to explore the breadth of our emotional landscape. It is our job to 
to look into our fears, look into our shadow selves, look into our swag, look into our grief, look into our horniness, look into our pining, all of the things. We have to do it so we can present it for people to create space for other people who aren't exploring their emotional landscape to give them the, the, the permission and the space to feel their own version of it. When people watch my shit, they're like, oh my God, I was so moved. Oh my God, you made me cry. Oh my God, you made me do this. It's like, I didn't make you do shit. All of those things are inside you. I just became, my work became a mirror for that moment for you to express it. You know, my stupid dad joke mm -hmm. is like, we're like a valve. We're like a valve for people to, you know, so so they can just release the things that they're feeling. And my even stupider joke is like, I'm evolved because I'm so evolved. Get it? <laughs> so, so to that point, it's like my last, you know, I have been articulating grief, you know, I have been expressing grief. And then I have, and on the flip end, it's like, I do express my love for people. You know what I mean? Like, I tell you, I love you all the time. And you're always, you know what I mean? Like, I'm the first to, to tell my friends that I love them, even if it puts mm -hmm. them in awkwardness, because we don't know how much time we have with the people that we have it with yeah true man so with the passing of my mom and with my kind of state right now all of that scarcity all of that feeling of imposter all of that was like fuck that we don't have time i am back to i'm the most talented person at bell media we're back at like you know what i mean if you give me a dollar i'll stretch that dollar and i'll give you a million back like we're 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 back and we're back, but it took me a long time for like as a Balik Bayan, I am returning to myself. I am returning to the the person that I always envisioned I could be, but that I lost. So my now stance of Balik Bayan is not just a person who returns to the homeland. It's I am returning to what my potential is and what my mom always believed I could be. I love it, man. I love it. Romeo, tell me something good about your life. Um, well, something good is I'm on this podcast and I'm talking to one of my best friends and uh, and we can openly express vulnerability and dreams and hustle and, you know, uh, and that we're still friends after maybe 14 years. Yeah. I love that, man. I appreciate that very much. That's the first answer that's made me cry in the show. But luckily, podcasters, uh, no one can see my face, so nobody knows. Tell, tell me about a good memory. Um, Getting that call that I got into Miss Saigon. I was flunking out of York Theater, and I was in a crew, and I was, like, standing a piece of set. And um, somebody from my res said, oh, Romeo, you have to call Stephanie Gorin. And so... I'm like, holy shit. And this was like the day of the auditions. And the next day they were going to announce the, uh, the, the company, the original company. And so I, I, I begged for a quarter. I phoned them. Stephanie put me on hold. And while I was on hold, I was like, holy fuck, holy shit, holy fuck. And then she came back and she goes, I was listening to you the whole time. You got a job. Do you want to start tomorrow? I'm like, holy shit. Holy fucking shit. And I screamed. I screamed. And then I walked back into that crew where I was failing theater school. And I'm like, I 
fucking just got to Miss Saigon, you motherfucks. <laughs> did Jagmeet sing? Did he? Did he? Did he swear this much on when you? Oh, did, that's did why you, I don't mind. That's why I don't mind you swearing. Okay, okay. Jagmeet Singh, he swore way more. Way more. Okay, great. Um, Romeo, finally, tell me something good we should always do for ourselves. This is, um, you know, I'm not going to say the typical shit. Um, because I've listened to your goddamn show, I really thought about this question. I'm not like, oh, you should love yourself. Fuck that. For ourselves as old fucking heads, cultivate your curiosity for what young people are listening to musically. I think music is a fountain of youth. I think music is the thing that keeps us, gives us, you know, when we think about youth, for me, when I think the idea of youth, I think of the idea of vitality, life force, life energy, this kind of like flow state that young people have because they have all this energy. So I always implore old heads who keep thinking that the best rap was Public Enemy in the 80s and 90s. Are you I, talking about me? Are you I, talking about me right now? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You're not an old head. Um, yeah, you are. But I just implore people to cultivate that curiosity of what young people are listening to musically because, again, they are the future. Again, they are a version. Of what, like, even, like, if I have to listen to my son's stupid, shitty, fucking meme pop shit, in in youth music is what's happening, is, is you know, is what's happening now. Um, and and I think that's what's pushing culture, consciousness, wokeness, conversation forward is what's happening in music for the young people. Cool. Romeo, thanks for doing this. Thanks, Matt. Um, I love you. Likewise. Likewise. Why are you a podcast? Have you seen your face? You're in a podcast. That's so handsome. Anyways, I'm pressing stop and record. Okay, bye. You know, there is a reason I ended this season with this particular interview. Much like the choice to end season one, uh, which was a chat with my mom, this one with Romeo was special to me. He and I are the type of friends that, you know, we don't see each other often. We check in from time to time, but there's this bond um, that's very special to me. And he has been instrumental in my journey as a writer and an actor, and uh, I appreciate the hell out of him. You know, it was also very interesting to hear him talk about his experience with Miss Saigon, you know, for many reasons. And this was a part of his life I really hadn't talked to him about that much. It was, it was before I met him, long before I met him. I knew it happened, but I didn't really know the ins and outs and the details. But here he is, he started in musical theater at 19 years old, and it has taken him on this journey, which we talked about. But it has now led him to a project called Prison Dancer, which we didn't talk about. And we would need an entire episode to get into. But it's a musical he has created and cultivated and nurtured for over 10 years. And my prediction, it's going to be on Broadway. And I want you to remember that I said it. You should Google it. It's worth knowing more about Prison Dancer by Romeo Candido, and uh, I'll just have to beg him to come back on the pod when Broadway comes calling. So uh, thanks to you, Romeo, for sharing uh, your story with us, 
and uh, for everything that you've done for me. Uh, I also want to thank all of you for being here and uh, and listening this year. And uh, I can't wait to reconnect with you in the new year. If you dig what we're doing here in the podcast, um, maybe over the holidays you'll know somebody who has some downtime who might like to listen to it. Share it with a friend. Uh, rate us. Hit the subscribe button. And send me messages, man. I love hearing from you. Good Things with Matt Wells is produced by me, Matt Wells, and my friend Vince Buddha for Greater Hood Productions. Our very cool theme song is Good Things by Walter Schreifels, as performed by his band Rival Schools. It was uh, great spending the year with you uh, here in the podcast. and um, I hope you have a wonderful holiday time. And the new year brings you everything you want. And don't you forget that if you want something in this life, you got to be the hardest working motherfucker in the room. Sorry to curse, Mom, but uh, Ice-T made me do it. We'll talk to you next time.